Welcome to Point Crawl. I'm your host, Connor Seitz Bowen. I'm out at Round Hill Park, the bottom end of Allegheny County, just before dawn. And here it's early in October, and I'm watching the seasons change. This week's Point Crawl is all about the outside world. Talk a little bit about the garden, Pittsburgh in snow and a few other things about the seasons and the way that western Pennsylvania changes every year. morning. I'm out on the back porch drinking coffee, trying to wake up and looking out at this garden box that I built at the beginning of the summer. The soil in our backyard, we haven't tested it yet, but I'm quite sure that it's contaminated. Hazelwood was an active steel production site for decades and decades, uh, well before the Clean Air Act. So. I'm sure that there's all kinds of fly ash and heavy metals in the soil. So I built this box instead. The box mimics real life soil. The bedrock for the box is two feet of cinder blocks. The box is about four feet high. Uh, and then the next foot and a quarter is straw bales, eight of them, on top of the cinder blocks. And that's meant to be either Hugo culture or straw bale gardening, the dead material from the forest that presumably existed here that will take a while to be eaten away by uh, mushrooms and fungi and insect life and will eventually become really wonderful soil, but uh, right now is acting as uh, water absorption structure, a big sponge, basically. And then above that, eight inches of topsoil, which I got at Lowe's, straight from the uh, military-industrial complex. In that, I planted a, a bunch of tomatoes, some peppers, uh, some basil, and a lavender bush, because I love lavender. Uh, though we didn't, it didn't quite go anywhere, and that's okay. The tomatoes I planted around the outside of the box. Next year, I'll plant them right in the center, because once the tomatoes got big enough, I couldn't actually reach through the tomato jungle and gather any other plants that were in there, especially the basil. It got woody really fast because we weren't picking leaves fast enough. So now I know, keep the herbs at the edge of the box and keep the stuff that you're going to have to harvest eventually in the middle, because when you harvest it, you're going to be bringing specialized tools anyway, and you might as well just make it inaccessible and make the stuff that you're grabbing every day quite accessible. The peppers did great. Uh, there's a poblano pepper plant that is on its third or fourth blossoming. Uh, it's got maybe 10 or 12 peppers still left on it here in late October. Uh, we've been eating the um, Cajun bell, which is a jalapeno bell pepper hybrid, makes these little sweet, slightly spicy peppers. We've been eating those all summer. Uh, the tomato plants, the early girls, two of them produced most of the tomatoes that we ate. There were a couple of heirloom tomato plants that we planted, but 
I didn't take good enough care of them, and insects started to eat them, and uh, almost all of their fruit ended up rotting on the vine or getting predated upon, so not so good. The yellow cherry tomato was definitely the most successful plant. It was delicious. You could just pick them right off of the, th- right off of the vine. They'd grow in bunches of eight or ten. So sweet, so delicious, sun-warmed, just amazing. Most of them didn't even leave the garden. I just popped them off and ate them right up right then. Over the course of the season, the soil level in this box has dropped about a foot. It started at uneven heights. I built the box so that my partner, who's significantly shorter than me, had her own side, and then I had the other side. The box is four feet by eight feet, and then four feet tall. Uh, So each of us has a two-foot area on our side, two feet by eight feet, uh, that is nominally ours. Um, The summer was pretty busy, so I ended up mostly maintaining the garden. Maybe in the future, we'll plan our plantings individually and just each have our own side of the box, Uh, but maybe not. By the end of the summer, in addition to the plants that I had planted there that were growing, there were hundreds, thousands, I don't know, maybe millions of guests, which I had not invited into the garden, but which found it on their own. Uh, There's an ant colony that lives in there now. There are green and white spiders, small ones. Uh, Some of them are green and some of them are white. They're not speckled green and white, though that would be neat. Uh, And they live in amongst the tomato plants and seem to predate upon the isopods and the ants and all the other stuff that's in there. There's worms that have made it into that soil. Uh, Most impressively, we got um, tobacco hornworm caterpillars, which eventually turned into the tobacco hornworm moth. Um, But there were caterpillars that were predating upon the tomato plants, just chewing up all the leaves. And towards the middle of the season, I found one of those caterpillars, which had itself been predated upon. It was paralyzed, about four feet up, a tomato vine. It was grabbing onto the vine, and on its back were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of parasitic wasp egg sacs, which had been deposited by a parasitic wasp mama. And uh, those babies had been in the sacs until they were old enough, and then they burrowed into the caterpillar. And that was, that was their gestation place. That was their, their toy room. So they spent their juvenile larval stages inside the caterpillar, eating away at it, and then emerged as small wasps. So you're supposed to actually leave these caterpillar corpses, these dying, I have a mouth and I cannot scream, caterpillars in the middle of the garden, not as a warning to the other ones, but actually because since they're full of wasp babies, those wasp babies are going to emerge, and when they do, you just won't have another generation of caterpillars. They'll get predated upon by all of these parasitic wasps super fast, because maybe there was just one mama parasitic wasp, but coming out of that caterpillar, there's going to be a whole population. So, no more caterpillars after that first one. And I thought that was pretty neat, to have three or four layers of ecosystem just form from zero layers of ecosystem, from a dead, polluted place. It's a wonderful thing to see. And certainly this garden has given me a lot of personal and internal hope that that things do grow and that when you when you plant seeds they do take root and something does come of it. Not always what you expected and 
Uh, maybe some of it rots on the vine, either due to inattention or um, mm, horrible H.R. Geiger biology. But either way, uh, it was a good garden, and it's kind of wrapping up. By the end of the day today, it should be in the 50s or 40s, I think, overnight, and that's that's the end of summer right there. That's well into fall, so this is really the last day. And I've been slowly pulling the tomato plants out as they've failed or fallen to disease, and they really worked. Their tap roots go well below the soil, right into the straw. Uh, the straw, we put Winecap Strafaria mushroom mycelium. Uh, we embedded it in the straw. You can actually order it online. You can order all kinds of edible mushroom stuff online. Oyster mushrooms, uh, shiitakes, I think. And what you get is you get a block of sawdust, which has been totally colonized by... Uh, mushroom mycelium and you break that apart and you put it all inside the straw and now a couple months later you know I dig through that soil and I get down to the straw layer and it's mostly white it's mostly colonized uh, it's not completely surrounded uh, mycelium tend to like to enclose nutrient sources uh, so that other fungi and bacteria don't have a chance to because they just encounter the outer edge of this fungal mass. And uh, yeah, I'm excited. Uh, I think that this garden's gonna keep going for years and years. I'm really looking forward to planting next year and maybe making more boxes. And now that I have this one box set up, I could definitely replicate more of them across the property. Uh, they're pretty cheap because the wood is all at standard sizes. I, I, I deliberately made them eight feet by four feet because you can buy eight foot boards pretty much anywhere. Uh, so, in some ways, it is the industrial empire, the military-industrial complex, uh, descending upon my garden and determining the size of the boxes I build, but, I don't know, I ate a lot of tomatoes this summer, and it was delicious. Uh, but next year, I look forward to planting Mr. Stripey again, a wonderfully named tomato and quite a beautiful heirloom tomato to look at. Uh, it really is quite stripey. See you next year. What power art thou who from below hast made me rise unwillingly and slow from beds of
Seest thou now how still, how still and wondrous Pittsburgh in Snow, first published January 2013. Pittsburgh is at its best a few days after heavy snow. Winter reveals the geography of the city better than any other season. The town's resting state during the cold months is a mix of browns and grays. The clouds hang low and ominous, closing in the world. Snowfall adds highlights of white, while melting snow turns surfaces black as shadow. Pittsburgh sits atop the Appalachian Plateau, which is a deposit of sedimentary rock three miles thick and a hundred miles wide. Very recently, in geologic time, glaciers swept down from the north and covered southwestern Pennsylvania in ice. As the glaciers melted and receded, the water swelled the rivers and cut the valleys that we see today. Because the original land surface was a flat plateau, almost all the hilltops in the area are at the same elevation, around 1,300 feet above sea level. And unlike hills or mountains formed by tectonic upthrust, the tops are not necessarily round or sharp. Occasionally, you'll find very flat, long hilltops in Pittsburgh, big platches of old plateau surface, not yet ground down into slopes and valleys by the knife of water and time, water and time. In the winter, these water-formed valleys are plain to the eye. They meander, as water does, from shallow cuts in the hillside, down, down, and down to the rivers. When the snow melts in spring, watch for the melt streams and see for yourself. Imagine millions of winter snow melts, and you can understand how the valleys we call home were made. These valleys give Pittsburgh much of its character. In The Spectator in the Topographical City, Martin Arand describes the usual view one has in Pittsburgh as being in a room in a mansion. You're on the slope of a valley, you're looking across that valley at another slope, and there's a slightly uphill neighborhood off to one side and a slightly downhill neighborhood to the other. This geographical reality humanizes the city, it occludes all but the most immediate neighborhoods, the rooms just to the left and right and in front of you, uh, and letting you understand just by looking around how each human establishment flows into the next. The snow reveals the slope of this topography, 
it makes the hillsides become banded. White lines where the slope is shallow and the snow sticks and black, chunky vertical sections of wet rock surface where the layers of shale overhang each other and the snow melts and drips off. Each layer of rock provides its own interpretation of the snowfall, allowing the flurries to cling or slide. Industry is also revealed in winter, though lack of green and leaves is a great help in getting a glimpse of the industrial efforts that surround the city as many of the sites can only be viewed fully at great distance and through a lot of trees that need to be bare. It is these large-scale industrial concerns which use our infrastructure most heavily, especially the active ones, and after a large weather event, it's these sites that return to function most quickly, powering through the remaining snow, or they have to, their economic survival depends on keeping production going regardless of the weather. The heat and force of those industrial efforts melt the snow. Train lines emerge as cold black cuts across endless white landscapes. Bridges shake off their shoulders and stand proudly against the ice and wind. Power plants churn away and mill walls radiate heat. Roof snow melts and slides off in great avalanches trampled by workers' boots as they complete the endless tasks of making. The snow also provides a quiet and stillness and peace in the city. It adds a simplicity of line, a narrowing and closing in of view, a softening of surfaces. Especially with heavy cloud, it brings the world down into the valleys and neighborhoods dampening sound and color, and revealing a bleaker, emptier world, where thoughts and ghosts have room to wander. about the music. The first song is an aria called What Power Art Thou, commonly known as the Cold Song. Uh, that's from a semi-opera in five acts called King Arthur, or the British Worthy. Uh, that was written by Henry Purcell, and uh, the libretto is by John Dryden, though I kind of made up some of it. That's okay, it's 350 years old. The song you're hearing right now is called Blue Circles. It's by Unreal DM featuring Sea Soul. And that is a Creative Commons licensed song. Uh, thank you very much to Unreal DM uh, and Sea Soul for featuring on Blue 
circles here, and thank you very much to uh, Creative Commons in general for uh, open culture.